If you were to take the gospel of John and split it into two halves, verse, chapter 11 is about where you're going to do that. They're very different. They're unique. Chapters 1 through 10 is three years of Christ's life. Towards the end, 11 and following is actually only two weeks. So the first half of it, three whole years. This last half is, is John has kind of now brought us to this point. And up to this point, Jesus has said, my hour, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, he's now to the place where he's saying, my hour is here. And so chapter 11 is what I would call a hinge chapter. We're hinging from his life and the story of his life to all of a sudden now to his last two weeks. And he begins that by this story of Lazarus, one of his best friends. Mary, Martha, the same thing. Whenever he would travel in this area, he would always stay at their house. Mary seemed to have that, that intimate relationship with Christ. She would uh, sit at his feet. She, you know, she's the one who anointed his feet. Martha, I kind of like Martha. I know she gets a bad rap. Um, people aren't supposed to like Martha. You're supposed to be like Mary. I, I get that. I just like Martha. She gets things done. I mean, if Mary was the only one in the house, you'd be fasting for a week. So you better thank God for Martha. She feeds you. And, and they're at this house, but Jesus is now away. He's with his disciples, and Lazarus gets sick. They're very aware. They've seen it all. They've heard all the stories. Jesus can do anything. He can heal. He can, take the, you know, the, he can make the blind see. And so what I think Jesus is doing uniquely is setting us up with a message and an important truth that may be about as central and as important in the Christian faith today as ever. And the reason is because if we, if we lived all the time in realized grace, it wouldn't take faith to live there. But there are times that God suspends grace. He suspends an answer to prayer. And those are the moments where the enemy whispers in your ear, are you sure God cares? Are you sure God's listening to your prayers? Are you sure you're a Christian? In suspended grace, and we all have to deal with it, we do. Suspended grace is a plane flying into towers and killing your husband. Suspended grace is a doctor telling you uh, your child has this issue. Suspended grace is a woman who was in our first service that just lost her husband six months ago and all of the dreams that they had of retirement are now gone. And in that moment where your life just gets flipped upside down and altered in the most significant way, the enemy whispers in your ear, are you sure God cares? Are you sure God is even aware of what you're facing? That's where he begins these last two weeks. And he begins there because he knows all of us at some point in our life, we're going to live in the dark side of grace or suspension. And there's some truths from this story that he wants you to hold on to. And you need to hold on to him to be a person of faith. And the first one is when you get into that place, you got to understand God knows. 
Now, I know we, we have a firm grasp on the theology of God, and we know that he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. But it's amazing how we can have this correct theology, and when you get into life, you kind of begin to wonder. And, and I think they wondered enough that Jesus multiple times had to tell them in one way or another, I know what's going on. I'm not blind to this. I'm not asleep. Starts in verse 4. And he tells him in verse 4, he says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Nope. It's for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, I don't think anyone in this room has a problem with God's glory. And if you do, I, I, I doubt it's very many. Unless it's God's glory at the expense of your life. Then we kind of think, hey, you know what, God, get, get glory through my neighbor. Get glory through somebody else in the church. Today, I'd like you to answer my prayer. Today, I'd like you to heal my son. Today, I'd like you to heal me. Today, I'd like you to revive. Today, I'd like you to solve. But Jesus said, I want you to know that I, I know what's going on. Later in verse 11, he says it again. He goes, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I'm going to go there and I'm going to wake him up. Verse 14 he makes this statement, so he told them plainly, hey guys, just so that we're clear, Lazarus is dead. I know I used the word sleep, but don't think that. He's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Now, I, I'm sure they wondered, seriously? For our sake? Lazarus, the one that died. But he knows. Why is that important? I think one of the most important things that enables you to have strength and courage is to realize that God knows. God knows what you're facing. Didn't catch him by surprise. God knows the injustice that you're under. He hasn't baptized the injustice. When Hagar was kicked out of the home with Abraham and Sarah and she was sent out into the desert to die with her young son, Ishmael, and she was sent out there and, and it was a curse, it was horrible, it was absolutely ill treatment by Abraham and Sarah. Some of the worst treatment that Abraham could give her. And she's out there and she's at a well and God shows up and she has this conversation with God. I've for the longest time been enamored by this story for a variety of reasons. But number one, it's to my knowledge the only place in the Bible that a human being names God. Otherwise, God kind of likes to do that himself. She names him and says, you're the God who sees me and you're the God who understands. That's all she says. She doesn't say, you're the God who solves my problems. You're the God who sees me. And for her, that's all she needed. I know. I know what's going on. I know what you're facing. I know the challenges. And that knowledge for Hagar and for Mary and Martha was enough to strengthen their belief. You mean you haven't forgotten me? No, I know what's going on. You mean I'm not in this thing alone? No, I know. You mean I, I, you're still listening to me? Yes, I am. I'm listening to everything. In fact, not only am I listening to you, but I have a design about you. I know. Now, the fact that God knows doesn't solve everything. In fact, it creates quite a tension. 
And the tension is simply, if God knows, then God has allowed this to happen. If God was blind, if God was unaware, okay, that would excuse it. If God was powerless, okay, you can know something and not have any power to do anything. But ah, Martha, this woman, she's smart. Verse 21, notice what it says. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. What is she doing? She's blaming Jesus. And she's saying to Jesus, this is bold stuff. You're the reason my brother's dead. You who call us good friends, you who think that Lazarus is one of your best friends on earth, what kind of friend are you? You could have done this. And if you would have been here, and I can almost hear Jesus saying, Martha, it's a lot worse than that. I didn't even need to be there. I chose not to act. I didn't have to be there. I've healed people from a long distance. You know that. It's much worse than you think, Martha. There's a tension, the tension between faith and blame. She's courageous because she comes at the Lord and basically tells him, you're the fault of my brother's death. But then she softens, verse 22, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. We hate tension. We like to eliminate it. It's why there's a systematic theology because we like our systems. We like to know how God saves. We like to know the process. We love to know when God's going to return. And we've got it all mapped out. We know exactly when those seven years start. And we know where we're going to be raptured. We've got it all planned. I have a sneaking suspicion when we get to heaven, we're all going to say, woo, my plan went out the door. We like systems and we like to remove tension. Jesus likes to build tension. You notice he doesn't scold her. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't tell her, "Ah, Martha, it's a lot worse than you think. I chose not to come. I chose to wait outside the city. I chose to stay a couple of extra days. But you can be certain, I know. And you can be certain that everything that I do is for God's glory and for your best interest, I know. Well, God, if that's the case, then it begs another question. And it's, do you care? Do you care that my brother's dying? Do you care that we're grieving? Do you care that he's the the breadwinner of the home? Do you care that we're going to be probably homeless if Lazarus dies? Do you care? And that's what gets whispered in your ear when God doesn't answer your prayer or when grace is suspended. That's what gets whispered in all of our ears when we're, we're wondering, God, do you really care? Are you really interested in us? And to respond to that very question, Jesus gives us two words. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. If you've ever started scripture memory, you should start with this one. Because in about 30 seconds, you can have a verse down. You can say, I've got one verse of the Bible memorized. You know what it is. Or say it with me. Jesus. See, you're all scripture memory, folks. You're good. You got one down. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Why? If you knew you were going to raise him from the dead, why did you weep? 
I mean, if somebody tells me that I lost a million dollars, but I know that I really didn't, I wouldn't cry. If they said, oh, Mark, you really have lost a million dollars. No, 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 it's still in the bank. Oh, no, no, you lost a million dollars. No, 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 I wouldn't weep. I would only weep if I really lost a million dollars. Then I'd weep. Why? Maybe it's because Jesus doesn't do what we do a lot. It's we minimize the grief of people by making comparisons. I know you lost your son, but boy, praise God, your other three children lived. I'm glad they lived too. But today I miss my son. Jesus wept. You know, there was 3,000 people that died in the towers that day when, when the planes came in, but it could have been worse. Yeah, could have been. But my son was in the tower and he died. My wife was in the tower and she died. One of the reasons I think we do that is because we're trying to protect maybe our own grief, but actually I think sometimes we're trying to protect people's view of God. I don't want you to think poorly of God. And so I try to somehow spin this life and make it better than it really is. But when you're living in suspended grace, when you're on the dark side of grace, Jesus wept. He didn't minimize their grief. He didn't say, you shouldn't cry. One of these days, I'm going to raise them from the dead. Uh, you shouldn't uh, cry because you're going to see them in heaven. You know, praise God for heaven. Yeah, I am with you. I just happened to miss them today. I, I love heaven. The thought of going there, pretty cool. When I was 16, didn't want to go there. When I was 21, I wanted to live more life. At 62, I'm okay. But the fact is, no. Don't minimize the pain that these two sisters lived with. Don't minimize the sadness. Don't trivialize it. Don't give them some Christian trite response. Well, at least they're in heaven. Who cares? They're not here. It hurts. And he wept. If your wife died, you don't care that you had 50 years with her. You wanted 51 And when you were married 20 years, you thought, wow, 50 years, that would that'd be great. But you know what? If it's a good marriage, you never get satisfied. You never say, oh, I've had enough. <laughs> How about if you take her, Lord? You don't do that. And so to somebody who comes along, and I know they're trying to help you, but Jesus doesn't do any of that. Does he care? Yes, he wept. He entered into their sorrow and he planted himself. It's a bad day. I'm sorry, Lazarus, you're brother died. There was a pastor who, uh, he made some bad choices. And, and the denomination that he was in so beautifully and rightly brought discipline to him and he lost his job. He should have. And, and they, they handled him so well, but it, there was still a lot of embarrassment around it and a lot of sorrow economic questions galore and uh, the next Sunday his wife kind of didn't want to suggest do you want to go to church seemed inappropriate but they got up that day and she said would you like to go to church and he said yeah I do I, I do want to go to church but I don't want to go to church where people will know me she said that's fair where do you want to go you choose We'll go. They drove upstate 
hour, hour and a half. They went into this church. There was somebody in the church that knew, but it didn't bother him. It was a good friend of his. It was the pastor of the church. And when this fired pastor walked in the door, came in the back there, his friend saw him and nearly ran to him. Went back and he put his arms around him. Just was weeping. Didn't say anything, just held him and held him. Finally, he kind of leaned back and he said, I'm so sorry, but I want you to know I love you. And he held him and he cried. Years later, this pastor that had been let go was restored. His denomination did a beautiful job of disciplining him and they did a masterful job of restoring him. When asked, where was it that you gained hope that God might use you again? He goes, well, the week after, I went to a church up north. There was a dear friend who wrapped his arms around me and wept and cried. And he said to me, I love you. And this fired pastor thought for a moment, he said it was at that moment that I finally believed that on my worst day, God still loves me. And Jesus wept, not shocked that I failed, sad. And he entered into my pain and my mistake and my wife's crushed heart like my friend, and he just wept because he cared. Didn't fix anything. God didn't fix anything with Hagar. When she was out there in the desert, didn't fix a thing. In fact, what he told her, I think, is kind of cruel. He said, you know what? A couple things. Number one, your son's going to be at enmity with everyone. Every playground he hits, he's going to have fight day after day. And there's not going to be one friend who loves your son. What mother would ever want to hear that? And secondly, I want you to go back to work for Abraham and Sarah, those cowards that kicked you out of town. He didn't fix the thing. In fact, I think he made it worse. And when that dear friend went up, and Jesus, by the way, when he went to sit with Mary and Martha, he didn't fix a thing. He just wept. Why? Because he cares. You don't have to fix anything to care. But when you care, that is a healing balm in a person's life that gives them strength in the midst of suspended grace. When you care, when you are willing to just sit there and not fix anything and not have any trite good sermon and have no really cool answers, all you can do is, I'm sorry. And you weep. Their hearts are healed. And it enables you in the midst of that to trust God's character. And you're going to need to do that. You're going to need to trust God's character because sometimes he's going to do things that just it sends you spinning. It does. And look at this text. Let's go back to verse 6. 
Jesus, go back to five, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he hurriedly ran to their house and he healed him. Now, Jesus, you did what? He intentionally stayed where he was at two more days. How rude. How rude, honestly. I mean, I can be honest with you. My wife's here, so she wouldn't do this. But if my wife wasn't here and she texted me and said, I need you now, I love you, I love you with all passion in the world. And if my wife needed me right now, I'd say, God bless you, I'll see you next week. The sermon's done. You can finish it however you want. If one of my kids needed me, I'm gone. If my best friend needed me, I'm out of here. Not Jesus. Why? Why? Why would you do that, Lord? That seems rude. He tells you. Verse 14. So then he tells them plainly, hey guys, Lazarus is dead. Can I drive it home for you? The man is dead. For your sake. I'm so glad that I was not there. Why? Lord, what are you doing? Because I want to help you believe. I want to help you believe. There's something more important than healing. Do they believe? There's something more important than removing suspended grace. It's that they trust you. There's something more important than a resurrection. It's they believe in you. And my friend, you don't need a miracle. You don't need God to solve your problem to believe. You don't need God to fix Hagar's situation for her to worship him. You have to trust his character. You have to trust that the reason why God allowed a thorn for the apostle Paul is because God loved him and he loved him more than anyone else in the world. And the reason why God did not allow all the people listed in Hebrews 11, all these people of great faith, but do you know what it says in verse 13? It says they died not receiving the promise that he had given to them, but they didn't defect. They didn't run away. They believed. Because they trusted God's character. There are going to be Christians who experience great tribulation. There was a martyr who died last week in a Russian prison. There are all kinds of Christians and churches in Ukraine that have been blown up. 31,000 soldiers, they say. Some of them followers of Christ. There's not a church standing in Gaza today. 70% of the buildings are in shrapnel. There's a suspension of God's grace. And they're in the midst of some of the most difficult tribulation. And Israel is in some of the most difficult tribulation. And they have the entire world trying to, if you will, hate them. It's there, you have to ask yourself the question, do I believe the design of God and what is it for his glory and for your benefit? For his glory and for your benefit. I'm glad I wasn't there. 
I'm glad I didn't respond to Paul's prayer and fix his thorn. I'm so glad I didn't because in the midst of suspended grace, faith grew. And believe it or not, that's where it often grows the best. I didn't come. I didn't heal him. Why? So that you may believe. Do you catch that? Do you, do you see the mystery and the, the majesty of God? We think, God, if you answer my prayer, I'll believe. If you fix this, I'll believe. If you cure my husband from his alcoholism, he will believe. And we're always leveraging God with this. And Jesus comes and he goes, I didn't come so that you would believe. I didn't heal him so that you would believe. Whoa, God, how do you do that? How do you do that? It's because faith doesn't need a miracle to believe. You trust the character of God. I trust, Lord, that it's for your glory and it's for my benefit. There will be Christians that have to live with being treated unfairly. Yes, maybe that's you. It's not trite. And when that experience happens, we should be there with you and we should weep. But we may not be able to fix the injustice. You may still lose your job. You may lose the court case. And God still says, trust me. Why? Because you can be certain that God rules. He does. The story unfolds. Jesus, once more deeply moved, verse 38, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Seems familiar. Take away the stone, he said. Martha and Mary, caught in real time, said, Lord, I don't think it's a good idea. My brother stinketh. And he is about to make all of us wish that you hadn't moved that rock. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, oh, Father, how I thank you that you've heard me. And I knew, I knew that you would always hear me. And Jesus looked into the cave and said, Lazarus, come out. He rules. Approximately two weeks later, Jesus would hang on a cross. The disciples' world was come to an end. They thought it was over. All of the glory that they thought about, and they were uh, held up in a, in a little room, scared to death, trying to think, how are we going to make ends meet? This is not turning out how we wanted. And um, Jesus was in a cave, and the Father sent some angels, and, and I don't know which ones he sent, but I would imagine the entire legion of angels of heaven said, please, can I go? Would you move the stone? Oh, Yes. And the father looked in and he said, son, come out. God rules. He rules over death. He rules over princes. He rules over kings. He rules over uh, benevolent, or, or over dictators. He rules. But my friend, that doesn't necessarily demonstrate or prove or generate faith. Because Lazarus walked out of the grave and look at verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to kill 
Jesus. A couple days later, Jesus tells his story. The story goes like this. You know it. It's, it's, we'll get there in John. The story is there was a rich man. And he had a gentleman at his gate who was poor. And he treated him very poorly, kind of indifferently. This rich man every day walked by this poor man and, and didn't care for him, didn't, wasn't interested in him. The rich man died and he went to hell. The poor man, the story unfolds, went to heaven. And the rich man comes to Father Abraham not sure what Father Abraham's doing in hell, but let's just, Jesus is telling the story, so let's not argue with it. And so Father Abraham's there, and the rich man says to Father Abraham, hey, can you please, please tell the poor man to go to my family? Please tell them. I don't want them to experience this. I don't blame him. Abraham comes back, and he goes, if they didn't listen to Moses and if they didn't listen to the prophets they're never going to listen to Lazarus uniquely in the story the man's name the poor man Lazarus I think that's an accident what's he trying to tell us dear friends in the midst of suspended grace what will cause you to trust Christ is not the resolution of your problem. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and they plotted to kill him. In the midst of suspended grace, we come to grips with the fact that there may be a delay and there will be. And sometimes that delay is till heaven. But there's always a design. What's the design? For the glory of God and for the benefit of you. It doesn't take the elimination of suspended grace to engender your faith. It takes trusting the character of God. It doesn't take the saving of your child for you to believe. It takes trusting the grace of God and the kindness, and the character of God. They saw a miracle, and they wanted to kill Jesus. You and I are going to live in suspended grace. Doctor's going to call us and say, your daughter's heart's not in good shape. Her heart is failing. God, not yet. Not yet. We haven't had enough years. And God will say, I will delay for the glory of God and for the benefit of you. It won't be a miracle that causes you to trust him. They tried to kill Jesus. What it will be, if you believe that the Father puts his arms around you and he whispers in your ear, I'm so sorry. And he weeps with you. And he tells you, I love you. I love you more than anything in the world.
in that moment, even with suspended grace, there may be a delay, but there's a design. And in that moment, your faith can be as solid as if Christ raised him from the dead right in front of you. Because you trust the character and the design of God. And if you get there, there's nothing that Satan can throw at you. Nothing that will steal your faith away.